From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Being a citizen means being proactive. A functioning democracy requires an informed electorate, and that requires knowing where to get unbiased, accurate information. Believe it or not, those sources actually do exist. One of the best is the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. Our first guest is the new leader of the PPIC, the Honorable Tani Cantel Sakayue, the former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. Why would a retiring Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court devote her energies in promoting civic engagement and policy analysis? We'll ask her. And the PPIC isn't the only great source of information. Another great source of unbiased information is the California State Auditor's Office that routinely does deep dives into whether state and local governments are working properly or not, and regardless how they can do their job better. We'll talk to the outgoing state auditor, Elaine Howell, and get her perspective, after over two decades on the job, of what can be done to make government better serve everyone. Those conversations in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. California's voters can sometimes see a, seem a bit disinterested and disengaged, frankly, sometimes at epic proportions. How do we get citizens to spend more effort and be, to become better informed and better engaged? Um, our guest has been a leading advocate in this area for some time, first as Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, and now as the President and CEO of the Public Policy Institute of California. And she is Tani Cantel Sakayuki. Um, welcome, Your Honor, to, to the Matter Report. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, it's, and, and here we are back again. Um, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger uh, nominated you as Chief Justice in 2010 uh, to the Supreme Court. I interviewed you five years later uh, in 2015. And our conversation really wasn't about the court's decisions. It was really focused more on uh, the importance of civic education and, and civic literacy. Very important things for you. A decade later, you're still at it. Why is this so important to you? It's important because civic education and uh, civic literacy really are the tools to participate and improve our democracy, our local communities. And there's always new audiences and even audiences that are already uh, well known in the areas of civics or are comfortable in civics are still learning. It's an applicability to all the new issues that are facing California. Yeah. And that's, you know, you, you bring up a really good point there. And that is, you know, we seem to be living in, a, in an age of, of misinformation where it's difficult to know what's true and what isn't. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, studies also show that people aren't really that aware of, you know, their own government, how the constitutional democracy works. And that seems like a pretty lethal combination, misinformation and lack of understanding. From your perspective, do you think the situation has gotten better or worse? I, I really think how you phrase it as lethal combination is accurate. And my 
belief is it has gotten worse. It seems that it's more volatile. It is uh, more inflammatory. It's also wrong and it's polarizing. So absolutely, it's worse. Yeah, and then that's obviously very problem problematic because you have to be able to work across the aisle and get things done. Um, and that if you're not operating from the same basis of facts, that's a problem. Let me ask you this, you know, the recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions, you know, some of them have uh, reversed years of what we thought was settled precedents. Uh, how do you think that's impacted people's view of the court um, in a constitutional democracy? Or, or should we look at be looking at this a different way? Should we be looking at this as, you know what, this is an, an opportunity. These seismic legal changes that we're seeing is really an opportunity to discuss the court's role in society. Is it a teachable moment? I certainly think it's a teachable moment, but it's also not has it's not been a great reflection on the court because part of the teachable moment means, well, what is the third branch of government? How are they able to do this? How long are their terms? Are they elected? It raises a lot of questions in many ways about how the court operates, its legitimacy as well. Um, so it has problems, but it's teachable because what we're seeing is, wow, the Constitution matters. We're still debating what it means. We're still debating the Bill of Rights. And by the way, states appear to be gaining uh, more power from these decisions. Yeah, and it, so it's, it's more of moving those decisions to the local level uh, as opposed maybe to, to at the federal level. Yes. It could be a good thing. The, the, what is it? The, the, the uh, laboratories of democracy are, are, are the states. Uh, you're certainly, one of the things you're certainly seeing is with the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade, it certainly has gotten people engaged. I was mm -hmm. talking recently about a, a recent uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court election, an off-year election, typically very low turnout. In this case, very high voter turnout. So people may not have been paying attention before, they're paying attention now. Let me ask you this, um, you know, what do you think needs to be done to improve the public's, you know, generally, and then maybe specifically the younger generation's uh, understanding of being able to discern fact from fiction uh, and understand actually how government works? I think that we need to talk about government and how it operates and that we need to emphasize critical thinking and collaboration. And I think we can do that in the schools and we are doing it in several programs, even in Fresno are doing it in the schools as well as throughout California. But we need to teach young leaders and older leaders need to model it, that there is critical thinking where you bring, you use facts that everyone can agree to because facts are facts. And from there you form your opinions and your strategy, but we all start with facts. And I think it has to be a far more civil conversation than what we're seeing in social media and sometimes regular media. Well, that's such a good point. I think a lot of people, perhaps my generation, kind of yearned for the Walter Cronkite you know, era when and everybody agreed to the same set of facts. We may disagree how to interpret those facts, but now there seems to be a dispute even what the facts are. So that is somewhat problematic. Um, up next, we're going to talk about why would a retiring chief justice of the California Supreme Court decide to lead a public policy think tank? And what does she hope to accomplish in that position? That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with the Honorable Tane Kantel Sakiue, who is the former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court. She recently retired from the court and accepted an offer to lead one of the state's preeminent private nonpartisan think tanks, the Public Policy Institute of California. So I guess the first question is, why? Why would you take on a role as CEO or President of the PPIC? Well, first of all, PPIC is a premier organization, a nonpartisan think tank dedicated to uh, data-driven surveys and reports to improve and inform public policy. 
and at the Supreme Court when I was Chief Justice for 12 years and even 20 years before that when I was on the Superior Court and the Appellate Court. As a jurist, we deal in facts. Facts matter, that's where we start. And for courts, the facts start with what the jury finds typically, and those are the facts, and we work from there. And so PPIC starts from facts. PPIC, like the courts, is about integrity. The facts speak for themselves, and while we might want facts to be otherwise or think that they are something else, we hew to the facts, and that's what PPIC does. And from there, we inform policy. And so it is a the reason I also like it is, unlike the courts, I am not unwinding a crisis when policy doesn't work. Rather, I get to be on the front end to inform policy. Yeah, I think you referred to it earlier as uh, a Humpty Dumpty, where you're putting it back together again after it's a mistake. It's always, it always reminds me when I was in practice, right? The client always comes to you after the problem as opposed to coming to you before the problem. <laughs> you, know, you, have to, you have to deal with what you got to deal with. Um, let me ask you this. You know, we seem to be living in increasingly uh, interconnected and digitized world where misinformation is spread either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, how do you think the PPIC can break through that uh, din and inform the public on these important issues in a nonpartisan fact-based way? Thank you. Well, we, as you know, strive to maintain our nonpartisanship and provide facts. And we do it in a variety of formats that we hope makes it digestible in multiple ways to the public primarily policy leaders, but to the public as well. So we'd have reports, but we also have summaries of the report that we call a policy brief. We have blogs, we have videos. We do a live speaker series where we invite the public for free to have lunch on us, thanks to our generous donors. And we provide Q&A with some of the state's leaders about what's happening. So we provide many formats and we're free just go to the PPIC website, click on us, and see the data, see the survey, learn about our state. You know, and your stuff is is pretty digestible. I mean, it's, it's thorough and it's digestible, but I wanna ask you, you know, what is your target audience? Is your target audience those policy wonks that wanna learn more about state policy, or is it the general public? Well, as a think tank, our target audience is really the decision makers, the policy leaders, the legislators, the constitutional officers of California who are actually in the position to write the law that makes up the policy that they are pursuing. But at the same time at PPIC, we realize that there are stakeholders in that process and people who are influenced or affected by bad policy who go to the legislators, their constituents. And we also know that local communities and local issues inform the legislature as well for state solutions. So those people are also our target, including the governor and other other executive officers are our target to provide them with data so that they can make informed choices for all of Californians. Well, there, there's no question the PPIC is very influential uh, in that space. I mean, legislators, uh, policy people are always looking to the stuff that you're writing. So I think you're having that effect. But let me ask you this. So there are other you know, think tanks out there that are very good. Um, the legislative analyst office uh, kind of focuses on the on the budget, but other things. Uh, the state auditor, um, the little Hoover Commission, all give really do really good job in reports and, and whatnot. But you're different. You're a private, uh, nonpartisan think tank. So what do you bring to the table that, that maybe they don't? 
Well, all of the organizations you mentioned are indeed impressive and do terrific work, but they're all uh, state funded in some possible way. And as a result, a lot of their duties are written into statute. Now, PPIC, however, is a nonprofit, independent, uh, charitable organization, a 501c3. And so we are independent. While we look at the same issues, we are we pick what we want to write on. We try to write on relevant matters that are going to affect California. And no one approves our work. Uh, no one tells us what to write or how to write. And so we are in that sort of public service space without government, uh, uh, any kind of government funding or any approval required, independent. Yeah, that's true. The state auditor, for example, is told, here are the reports we want you to, or things we want you to look into by the legislature. So you, you are a little bit different in that respect. Well, you know, we're all a product of, in one way or another, of our background and experiences. What background and experience uh, does our guests bring to leading one of the state's most respected nonpartisan public policy think tanks? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. Because of that support, the Maddie Institute has highlighted San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice, and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Maddie Associate. You can learn more at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with a recently retired former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court and newly appointed head of the PPIC, the Honorable Tani Cantel Sakeyue. Uh, about how public policy can be fashioned both inside the government and outside the government. So you were appointed uh, to the high court by a Republican governor in 2010, spent 12 years as the chief justice. How do you think those experiences or that experience will influence your work at the PPIC? I think that my work as a chief justice of California for the last 12 years leading the judiciary, but also my work um, on the trial court where I was a superior court judge for 14 years and then an appellate justice for six years. It has taught me that people have various points of view, passionate and principled, and that no one is ever 100% completely correct. And that when we work together with civility and we collaborate, that we always have a better product and a better solution that we can all live with and all be feel that we're a part of. So bringing that to PPIC is easy because that's what PPIC basically already does. Starting with the facts and the data after inquiry, PPIC brings together disparate voices, hears them, listens to them, and writes, and writes fairly and objectively to inform policy, to improve policy. And I think that really my work in a black robe is very similar to the work that PPIC does in its efforts to uh, make for a better California. You know, actually, I think you can probably sum up what the PPIC is doing is, is they, their approach is no one has a monopoly on good ideas. Um, both sides have good ideas to bring to the table. It needs to sit there and really analyze them and see which really might work best uh, in, in a given situation. You know, you're also kind of unique in that you're only the second woman and the first person of color to serve as chief justice. Um, how has that identity experience influenced your outlook on public policy? Well, I can honestly say that having started out in 1984 as a, as a young prosecutor and working for the governor's office and going to the bench thereafter has exposed me to a lot of issues that uh, 
people have in California, and that is starting with family and education and housing and economic mobility and the struggles therein. And I can say that having been a jurist, I have seen people's solutions and I've seen what laws can do to change people's lives. So as uh, Chief Justice and then coming here, I think I have a very open mind about all the different ways that we can craft a solution. And I'm very aware that life changes and circumstances change and we must change with those as well. Yeah, um, you know, uh, when you were Chief Justice, you did considerable work on civic education and engagement among Californians. That was really one of the hallmarks of your tenure. How do you plan to continue that work um, as head of the PPIC? Well, I think that PPIC in and of itself already has done and been really a civic leader writ large, right? From the beginning, it's been a nonpartisan, objective, fact-driven, data-driven uh, report think tank. And so in many ways, with their information being accessible to the public, it does its own form of civic engagement uh, and I think education just by existing and having people read their work. But also uh, PPIC is cognizant of the need to continue to do more. So part of its strategic plan is to engage more in civics, that is literacy, education, and engagement. And so we're going to do more. We already do a speaker series events where we bring the public for free to listen to speakers. We provide lunch. We do a Q&A, not only in person, but online. But we're also going to reach out and convene and find a way that PPIC can add value uh, to the civic need space that might be different that only PPIC can provide. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. People, uh, you know, get their information differently. You know, when I was growing up, it was, you know, you had the three networks. I'm dating mm -hmm. myself here, but um, that's where you got your information. Now, multiple sources, multiple platforms and how people get their information really varies from generation to generation. That's right. And that's why PPIC is, has so many formats for our information. Not only do we write a report, we write a summary of the report. And then our premier researchers give a video on the report. And then we do fact sheets and explainers and we disseminate them to the public, not only in hard copy when I walk over to the legislature if that's needed, but also online. And uh, we also hope that other sources will pick us up and quote us. And they usually do. <laughs> so up next, we're gonna talk about what some of the big issues that the PPIC is gonna be looking at in the near term and any further in the future. That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with the former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, who in retirement has taken on a new role, that is President and CEO of the Public Policy Institute of California. She is the Honorable Tani Cantel Sakayue. Um, so some would say in, in today's jargon, you continue to be a key <clears throat> state influencer when it comes to public policy. Um, and so my daughter tells me, my teenage daughter tells me that an influencer is, is an important thing. So, you know, you guys do a lot of work. And one of the things you do is this uh, statewide survey of Californians and their government. I know Mark Baldessari, your predecessor, who's continued to be engaged in that. Why, why is that so important? Yes, well, Mark, as you indicate, my predecessor did a terrific job of building up PPIC. And um, when he retired, I asked him to stay on. That was one of my first duties as uh, CEO. I sought to keep Mark and he agreed to remain as our survey director. But the reason that's so important in many ways is that uh, Mark's survey via PPIC is 
reliable, credible, excellent quality, and because it's so well respected in the state. And when I go over to the legislature and meet the members and the new members, even just these last few weeks, all ask about the survey and what their survey showed. And so you know that we just finished one of our surveys. Right, it's, it's, it's very important. And one of the things that's shown up in your survey recently, last couple of years, certainly is the importance of uh, homelessness and housing. Um, that's a, a really big issue in the state. It's been at the forefront now for a number of years. I mean, what are your findings? What are some of your key findings in that area? Well, we're finding that just as you mentioned, per the survey, that many Californians, a supermajority, continue to be concerned about both housing and its affordability, and they're concerned that their families will not be able to purchase a home in California. So there is their own family concern about migration out of California because the housing prices are unattainable. At the same time, the survey also reflected that a supermajority of Californians have reported to see an increase in homelessness, and that is a concern in their community. Uh, so you know that on their mind are housing, homelessness, the economy, and the pandemic, as well as we asked about their views on the governor's budget. And most people agree with the governor's direction for this year's budget. You know, but he did talk about when he first came in office in 2018 about a Marshall Plan for housing. And he was talking about building half a million homes a year. They're actually building about 100,000 homes a year. So only about 20% of that, that target. Um, it's, it's big, it's a heavy lift. Um, the government can't do it alone. It has to be a public private sector partnership. And it is a big driver. Housing costs in California are a big driver for our poverty rates um, because housing is so unaffordable for so many Californians. Um, so, it's a, so it's a big issue. Uh, let, let me kind of transition here and ask you about another issue that's particularly important to those of us who live in the San Joaquin Valley, and that's the issue of water. Now, you guys have something called the Water Policy Center, uh, run, uh, founded and run by Ellen Hannock. She's recently uh, said she's going to be stepping down, but very influential when it comes to water policy. You know, what are you trying to accomplish with the Water Policy Center? Thank you. Well, Ellen uh, has started the Water Policy Center about 10 years ago. And uh, luckily for us, she is not stepping away. She's just stepping down as the director, but will be on hand at PPIC and still with water. But with the Water Policy Center, what we sought to introduce was a safe space for all of the disparate water interests and points of view, because as you know, Water is a heated subject in California. There's a reason why they call there's a reason why they call it the water wars, right? There's a yes. reason. Yes, yes, and 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 under those circumstances, then PPIC is Switzerland. This is a place where we convene all the different water interests to understand each other, to explain their concerns, to seek solutions, to seek organization, to under and so it's it's a place where. We speak on water policy because of the Water Policy Center in Ellen, and we have a water policy advisory committee of various voices about water to talk about how California can solve this and move forward because we're not going to solve anything by fighting. Right. You know, I, I, I first of all, I appreciate you referred to it as kind of the Switzerland on water issues because I'm part Swiss. And so I take that as a as a high compliment and, and we'll take it as Swiss. We'll take that. Um, you know, there are a lot of issues that you guys are handling. I do think that your your work in the water spaces is really terrific because, you know, you talk to both sides, environmentalists or, or farmers or what other people, they all respect the PPIC's work in this area. Um, and so it is a great, you know, source that everybody can point to. We may disagree on how to interpret those facts, but we know we'll get the straight facts from, from the Water Policy Center. So it's it's been a great uh, addition to the conversation. 
let me ask you this. There's a lot of other issues obviously going on in California. What are kind of what are some of these other issues that you're focusing on? Well, we're focusing a bit on the results of the pandemic and what it did in terms of higher ed and K through 12 education and just what it's done to college enrollment across the board. We're looking also at healthcare issues and also healthcare workers and pan the pandemic effect. We're also looking at the economy and California's economy and looking at in this space, how we find balance between businesses needs and workers needs. We're also looking at trends in California, what we're doing today, teasing that out long-term to find out what California will look like 10 years from now. And, and you know, we also regularly publish very interesting fact sheets like birth rates and declining birth rates and who's moving out of California, who's moving in, the college explainers, about is yeah. is a college four year degree worth it anymore? Yeah, it's a great it's a great source of information, uh, and I want to encourage folks to check out the PPIC website. I want to thank our guest, uh, the, the Honorable Chief Justice, former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, Tani Cantil Sakayue, for joining us. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this program. A functioning democracy requires a well informed electorate. Indeed, there's nothing more important. And by taking the time to become better informed, you're not only supporting fact based decision making but you're doing your part to strengthen our democracy. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson once wisely noted that the best defense of democracy is an informed electorate. So thank you for being an engaged citizen and helping make the San Joaquin Valley and California better and our nation a more perfect union. Now, back to the program. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. Dan Walters, longtime political columnist, has noted that the California State Auditor's Office is one of those, quote, invaluable agencies that give lawmakers and the larger public independent information and advice, unquote. Up next, we'll hear from the recently retired state auditor, Elaine Howell, who, after over two decades of service, has a unique perspective on the good, the bad, and the ugly of state government and what can be done to make it work better for all of us. That conversation in a moment. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. You know, for those of folks who don't know about the state auditor's office, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. The state auditor's office has been around for a long time. And what we're required to do, we have statutory authority to conduct we do financial audits. We audit the state's financial statements. We audit federal money that comes into California um, and to make sure state agencies use that money appropriately. But the biggest, the biggest amount of work that we do is performance auditing, looking at state agencies, local governments, and how well they are providing services to people in the, the regions in the state, either state agencies here in Sacramento or local governments. It, it was many years since I took a, a course in accounting. So, so why don't you help me and our audience understand what an audit is, um, what triggers an audit, what happens after an audit is completed? Sure. The, the audit of the financial statements, that's an annual requirement in state law. So we go out to state agencies and make sure they're accounting for tax dollars appropriately and using those funds appropriately. Performance audit is, is uh, assigned to us essentially by the legislature. There's a joint legislative audit committee 
There are seven senators on the committee, seven assembly members. One member uh, is assembly member, Mr. Patterson. So uh, we have a variety of different members, both sides of the aisle, some Democrats, some Republicans. And that committee meets a few times a year and hears requests from members of the legislature asking for our services. And once the committee approves those audits, uh, that becomes essentially a mandate for us to get the work done. So that's how probably about 75% of the work we do comes to us through that mechanism. And then what happened when, when you when you do an audit, then what? It just, does it end up on someone's shelf or does it actually happen? <laughs> well, let's hope not. So um, we, you know, we get the, at the hearing, I will present an analysis of here's the questions, here's the concerns that the members have. And then what I will do is explain to the members the steps we will take as an office to answer those questions. So that once the audit's approved, we assign staff, they get out in the field and we do complete an audit report. Uh, but what I have always told staff is that's not the end of the job for you. Now an important job starts and that's communicating the results to the public, uh, communicating the results to the legislature um, and helping people understand the issues we identified and why we think there needs to be change at a particular agency. And that's why we identified specific recommendations that need to be implemented. Yeah, you know, the other thing you do is, is you look into uh, whistleblower reports. Um, so you conduct those investigations when someone says, there's, listen, there's something improper going on in, in government. Um, what kind of conduct qualifies under the whistleblower statute? And um, what do you do when you receive a complaint? Right, so we have an investigative division uh, where we have a hotline, 1-800 number. We have uh, the ability for people to file a complaint online. Anybody can file a complaint with the, with the state auditor's office with respect to improper governmental activity. Well, what does that mean? It could be somebody uh, on a state job doing personal uh, business, if they have a side business, doing that during state working hours, misuse of state resources, using state resources for personal benefit, um, travel expenses, uh, all kinds of things uh, that are illegal or improper or wasteful, inefficient. So my investigators receive those complaints, hopefully get enough information from the person who submitted the allegation to get us started. And then once we determine there's enough information there, we will pursue it. And then ultimately, if we substantiate, confirm that there is a, a problem or a violation of law, uh, we'll issue a report to that particular agency. And then two or three times a year, we issue a summary report of all the investigations we've completed. Yeah, it's, it's good that, that we have employees or our people have a whistleblowers of a place to go to, to report wrongdoing. I wanna ask one last thing in this segment, we've only got about a minute left. I wanna ask you about the Citizens Redistricting, Redistricting Commission, um, which comes about every 10 years after uh, the census. You have a role to play, your office has a role to play. What is that role and why your office? Oh, we have a huge role. Uh, we've done it twice. Uh, back in 2008, a proposition was passed by the voters requiring an independent citizens redistricting commission. In the past districts, assembly, senate, and board of equalization districts, those lines were drawn by legislators. And there was concerns about gerrymandering and, you know, Republicans working with the Dems to figure out what the district should look like. And the voters said, no, we want an independent commission. What my office was, was charged with doing is developing the process for educating the public about this commission, and then ultimately putting a process together to look at applications and 
create a 14-member commission. So yeah, you, so, place. yeah, you basically set it up then. Um, Absolutely. Okay, well, up next, we're going to find out how does someone become a state auditor? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Elaine Howe, who recently announced her retirement after more than 36 years of service of auditing state government, 21 of those years as the state's auditor. You know, uh, uh, Elaine, if I may call you Elaine, you know, you've always been uh, a terrific guest. You've been our program a number of times. And one of the things that's always struck me about you, it's, it's never been about you. It's always about state government and how we can make state government better. And I, I'm, I, I know I'm gonna embarrass you with this a little bit, um, but since you're retiring, um, there's nothing you can do about it. I wanna read some uh, from an editorial uh, that I read recently about your retirement. This is what they had to say about you. They said, Elaine Howe has always been an outstanding state auditor for California, a beacon in the fog, shining a light on waste, fraud, and abuse, and boondoggle projects that fail to live up to the promises made to the people of California. Elaine Howe has set the standard for what a public official should be, dedicated to making government work efficiently and effectively, pursuing accountability when it falls short, and fearlessly standing up for public, the public interest. That's quite a legacy. Um, so what do you say to, um, to folks? And when you're saying, you say, you know, I, I was drawn to public service for this reason. Why, why didn't you get into this area of work? Well, it, it, it's kind of by mistake, um, <laughs> honestly. Um, when I went to college, I have an undergraduate degree in sport management, got a master's degree in business administration here in Sacramento, Cal State Sacramento. Um, and my career goal was to be uh, working for a major university and athletic director uh, as in a major university. But, you know, that was in the um, early 80s, not a lot of opportunities for women in that field. Uh, so my brother actually talked to me about, you should consider working in state government. He was working in the legislature as a, as a staffer and talked to me about the auditor general's office. And I said, I, I don't want to be an auditor. Are you kidding me? Um, so. I uh, went ahead and applied for the job and thought, okay, I'll stay with the office for a couple of years. He said, you're going to learn a lot about state government. There might be a state agency that you want to work for. Um, and then when I got the job, started in 1983, uh, so it is 38 years. Um, and after a year or two, really fell in love with the work because there's so much variety. There's opportunity to problem solve, identify issues, and hopefully affect change. And I just, you know, uh, decided to stay here. I know that sounds crazy to uh, the younger generation to stay at one place for such a long time, but I really felt the work, the variety of the work, the diversity of what we got to do, and the challenge. It's a really difficult job, but it can be very rewarding at the same time. I can see some kind of crossover between an athletic director and being a state auditor. I mean, you're monitoring activity and when people step out of line, you're the one who's got to step in and say, nope, that's not acceptable. You're violating the rules here. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's some similarity and, and we appreciate your service in that regard. I want to ask you though, who appoints the state auditor? I mean, how does the process work? You know, is it usually unanimous vote or does it, do they vote along party lines? How does that happen? Well, the times that I was selected as state auditor, I was initially appointed state auditor in August of 2000. Um, and the way the process works, this, it's in state law that the Joint Legislative Audit Committee actually submits three nominees to the governor and the governor ultimately appoints. 
But what the audit committee traditionally has done when they nominated me initially back in 2000, it was a unanimous recommendation that here are the three names, but we unanimously uh, recommend that you appoint Elaine Howell as the state auditor. So I was obviously very blessed to have that uh, decision made uh, and Gray Davis appointed me in 2000. And then the subsequent times I was reappointed to the position. It was the same situation where the audit committee sent those three names, but as part of their communication, they let the governor know we unanimously um, suggest that Elaine Howell be reappointed. So I would assume the process is going to be very similar uh, going forward. Uh, well, we hope so. Well, as we've noted, the California State Auditor is tasked with providing an unbiased assessment of government programs. Sometimes the results are positive and show the state agency is doing things that they're intended uh, and set up to do. Other times, uh, there are some problems and bureaucrats and, and politicians may not like being called out for mismanagement or worse. What are some of the more notorious examples of, quote, fraud, waste and abuse that the state auditor has seen during her career? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. We're talking with Elaine Howell, a long-serving state auditor uh, who recently announced her retirement. You know, you've covered the gamut of state uh, agencies uh, in your work. One of the most notorious audits that you did was one that you did kind of recently, and that concerned the mismanagement at the state's economic uh, development department. Uh, some have reported uh, can result as will result in as much as twenty billion dollars in fraudulent job jobless claims uh, paid to criminals and con artists, among others. How in the world did that happen? Yeah, we, we issued two audits in earlier this year, in January of 2021. The legislature, the audit committee, came to us in September uh, with an emergency audit request because constituents were you know, just really frustrated with trying to work with EDD, Employment Development Department, to get their claims filed so that they could get some benefits. Um, so we issued two reports, one looking at the process for claims and the other looking at fraud. And as you said, Mark, the fraud was significant. When we issued the audit, it was $10 billion. I know it's upwards of close to 20 billion. Recently at a, a committee hearing, the director of the department uh, acknowledged that it's gonna be around $20 billion. Um, and our frustration as the state auditor's office is, we issued a report 10 years ago, talking to EDD and explaining to them and analyzing their claims process, their call center, and identified weaknesses that they could have addressed years ago. Also, there was a, a re audit request back in 2018, uh, 2019, when we conducted some work looking at identity theft and protecting social security numbers and uh, recommending to EDD that there are certain forms you're sending out to people and you're leaving their full SSN on there and that is risky. Mm -hmm. And we said, you've got to find a way to truncate it. We gave them options, but they didn't take us up on those and never implemented that recommendation. And lo and behold, during the pandemic, we saw thousands of documents going to different addresses, suspicious addresses, et cetera. So in all likelihood, there are thousands of Californians who have had their identity stolen because EDD didn't fix these problems years ago when we, when we told them about them back then. And I think that's why a lot of members of the legislature are even more frustrated than they perhaps would have been uh, if they had you know, had addressed some of these issues. Now, pandemic is significant, of course, we've got to acknowledge that, but you knew about these problems years ago and you didn't address them. That would have mitigated some of the issues that uh, people yeah. are, are facing uh, these last two years. Yeah, $20 billion, I mean, that's just eye-popping numbers. Uh, 
Your office has also issued uh, some reports on the costly delays and failures associated with uh, the uh, Fiscal Technology Project. It's a billion dollar technology project supposed to overhaul the state's accounting system. Um, this has been a decade long mess, apparently. Uh, pretty amazing that a state known for technology can't seem to put together a technology project. Yeah, this is a huge project. And as you said, it's been going on for years. And when, when Fiscal originally was launched, the legislature put in state law that the state auditor's office would monitor the project. And we have been doing that and issuing reports, at least on an annual basis, because we're required to in January. And, and yeah, unfortunately, this project has really struggled. It was intended to be a big project as far as accounting, budgeting, procurement. It has been cut back as far as its functionality, yet the, the costs continue to rise and balloon. And, and our most recent report talked about Fiscal suggesting that the project is complete, which is not correct. Uh, there's a lot that still needs to be done. The state's financial statements aren't even finished yet because agencies struggle to use Fiscal for the accounting purposes. So it's a project that has just struggled from day one and continues to struggle. Unfortunately, it's very expensive for the state of California. Well, it's something the next state auditors are going to have to be looking at, looking at uh, apparently. Um, yeah, it is kind of a, it is amazing that that they haven't been able to get their act together for a decade. Um, now, you also regularly examine what's called high risk, quote unquote, issues and agencies that need more scrutiny for, quote unquote, fraud, waste and abuse and mismanagement of major or major challenges associated with economy efficiency or effectiveness. So what are some examples of some of the findings in that regard? Yeah, we have two uh, high risk programs, a state high risk program and a local government high risk program. So the state mm -hmm. high risk program allows us based on our institutional knowledge of the work that we've done over the years to identify issues that are you know, at risk of being wasteful, et cetera. So a, a perfect example is emergency preparedness. How well prepared is California to deal with fires, floods, earthquakes in all likelihood are, are um, gonna happen in California. So how well are we prepared from a, a local perspective, working with the state, working with the federal government? That's an example. Information technology procurement uh, is an issue that we've had on our high-risk list for a long time. What that allows us to do is conduct audits at our own initiative. We don't have to wait for the legislature to tell us about that. Local high-risk program is where we have assessed the fiscal health of all cities in California. So we actually have a dashboard on our website that people can look at. And we have about four years worth of data. So we're starting to develop trend analyses and looking at which cities are in trouble uh, from a fiscal perspective. We've done some analysis based on the pandemic. Uh, we're, you hired an economist to help us do some projections. So I think there's really good information out there for uh, people of California to look, how is my city doing compared to cities nearby? Why is my city struggling when cities nearby are not? So we think that's a valuable tool that we've uh, developed over the last few years. Well, that's tremendously valuable because people come in, yeah, like you said, can look on exactly what their local government is doing. And I encourage people to log on your website and, and check that out. It's a way to keep local officials uh, held them accountable. Absolutely. Yeah, um, when we launched that dashboard, it was interesting. We got a lot of constituents calling us and, and in fact, uh, city council members, yeah, I, I city managers, why are we in the red? Well, this is why you're in the red. So it really did trigger change immediately. 
Yeah. Well, up next, we're going to see what parting advice the state auditor has for California. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Elaine Howell, who's the current state auditor, who's retiring after more than 20 years of service in that position. You know, despite the high nature profile of your job, there's been very little turnover. I mean, you've been in that position for, for 21 years. Um, that's a long time for a person to be head of, of a state agency, for sure. Uh, do you think that type of longevity is going to continue in the future? I certainly hope so. I think one of the benefits of the office and, and what I've explained to members is I think the reason I've been able to be effective is, of course, because I have very talented staff, but I've been in this organization for a long time and I started out as an entry level auditor and worked my way up and really understand what it takes to do the job. Um, but also willing to understand that we need to continually improve and develop uh, new techniques of conducting audits, new techniques of communicating. Um, 21 years is a long time. I think a lot of people were surprised that I stayed this long, but uh, if you love the work and you are passionate about it, uh, it, it, it just makes sense to stay. I couldn't think of doing anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to ask you this, so, and it kind of it ties into the same thing. You have an impeccable record of being nonpartisan, but are you at all concerned that the state auditor's office is going to go the way of what a lot of politics has gone these days, becoming hyper-partisan? I think we need to be very careful with that. And, and the good news is, in talking with members of the legislature, members of JLAC, they all understood that when I talked to them. I said, one of the key things that I would advise you as far as selecting my successor is make sure that there isn't any appearance of partisanship or political agenda or anything. It needs to be someone who is nonpartisan independent because that is the credibility and the integrity of this office. Um, and the benefit to all Californians is this office has been able to maintain that impartial nonpartisan uh, stature. Uh, and it's critically important to continue that. There's no question. It brings a gravitas, you know, to what you do, and people pay attention because they know there's no agenda there. Um, you're just reporting the numbers and what you what you're finding. You know, I want to ask you this. You know, you're looking at the qualities of the next state auditor. What kinds of qualities do you think are important for someone in that position? Well, it, uh, you know, I, now that I'm leaving, I can say this. It's a hard job. Uh, it's a 24-7 job. Uh, but, but I think the qualities that you need is, is the nonpartisan, the ability to be objective, uh, steadfast as far as making sure that, you know, you support your staff who work here. We go out, we find the evidence, we do the analysis, we reach conclusions, and we make recommendations. And some people will push back on that. But if we continue as an organization to do our due diligence, follow standards, remain impartial and objective, uh, then the office will continue to be successful. So whoever my successor is needs to really um, be passionate about that and support the staff uh, and, and be steadfast with, you know, hey, this is what the evidence tells us. Speak the truth to power. I say that all the time to my mm -hmm. staff and to the members of the legislature. It's interesting. If anybody reads your reports and then reads the, the agency's response, mm -hmm. there's also a response to the response. That's right. And the, the bottom line, I guess you'd say, is you have your staff's back. Uh, and you'll yeah. say, well, you know, wait a second, you know, you got this, you know, and you'll, you'll respond. Um, and so I think the staff undoubtedly appreciates the support you provide. Now, let me ask you this, a little more general question. Um, you're undoubtedly a role model for a lot of women who want to work in government, um, you know, in a very high profile position. Who is your role model uh, when you got started? And what advice would you give to women who are just beginning their careers in public service? 
Um, well, speaking about a role model, I think the person that had the most influence on me is my mom. Um, and it's, she's been gone a long time, but uh, she made sure that her girls, uh, my sister and I, had the exact same opportunities that my brothers had as far as going to college, pursuing professional careers. She said, don't underestimate what you can do. You know, you're a woman. And it's, you know, at that, in those days, back in the 70s, when I was in high school and college, it's a man's world. But she said, that does not mean you can't be successful. So reach for the stars because you can do it. And she made sure that my sister and I had the same opportunities my brother, my two brothers did as far as going to college and pursuing professional careers. My sister's been very successful, of course, my brothers as well. Um, so my mom was, is the one that I would always say is the number one role model. She was a really bright woman, very tough. Um, and I just tried. We, to, all, we all need a parent like that, you know, in right. our corner. She, she was terrific. So uh, that would be, she is my role model. Absolutely. And what, would, what advice would you give to young women today? It's a little different than when you started. I mean, frankly, you were a trailblazer. It, yeah. You did not see a lot of women in high profile positions in state government. It's changing. Um, you know, we did a recent report on the you know the top unelected people in state government. Majority now in the top ten are women. Um, so it's changing. But what advice would you give? We only got about 10, 15 seconds. What quick advice would you give? Don't ask, uh, Don't underestimate what you can accomplish. Don't let anybody tell you you can't accomplish things. You have to be tough. It's going to be difficult at times, but you can do it. Reach for the stars. You absolutely can do it. That's great advice. I want to thank Elaine Howell, the state auditor, for being on our program and for being such a, a wonderful state auditor all these many years. And thank you for joining us. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. The Maddie Institute is your public affairs institute. We're an alliance of the Valley's four public universities, Fresno State, California State University Bakersfield, Stanislaus State, and UC Merced, that have joined forces to better serve the residents of the San Joaquin Valley. Our goal is to support a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to the public policy challenges we face as a region, state, and nation. You can learn more about the activities of the Maddie Institute by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com.